0: Wildfires are scorching the West Coast, leaving behind a path of death and destruction. Forecasters call it a bomb cyclone.
1: Winds of 150 miles per hour. Tens of millions of Americans are dealing with dangerously high temperatures, with many areas hitting triple
0: digits. Scientists say climate change is worsening flooding around the world. This is going to get really ugly really fast here. Welcome to the Climate Crisis Podcast. My name is David Knowles. I'm a senior editor at Yahoo News. And I'm here with my partner in crime, Ben Adler, another senior editor here at Yahoo News. And we have put together a series of interviews with experts to try and help people understand exactly what's going on with our planet and why it matters. Ben, you've covered climate change for years for this organization and others. What do you think the biggest challenge is heading into the UN Climate Conference in terms of getting the world back on track when it comes to rising temperatures?
1: The biggest challenge is going to be getting individual countries to commit to cutting their emissions enough to bring the trajectory of greenhouse gas emissions that cause global warming into line with the goals that the countries have already agreed to. In 2015, in Paris, countries said they wanted to, they were committed to staying below two degrees and hoping to stay below one and a half degrees Celsius of warming. But the pledges that they made to cut their emissions don't get the world to that goal. They, in fact, would mean 2.7 degrees Celsius of warming or more, up to three and change. And of course, you know. For Americans, that may sound lower than it really is, each of those degrees is 1.8 Fahrenheit. So we're talking about warming of over five and a half degrees. So some countries have increased the ambition of their pledges a little bit in the run-up to Glasgow, but not enough to get to the goal. There's actually a new report, a synthesis from the UN that you know gives all the numbers behind that calculation. So getting the countries, particularly the biggest countries like China and the United States to increase their ambition is really the most important thing that could happen there.
0: When you cover climate change, the numbers become this preoccupation. And, and it's the scale of the numbers that's really interesting. You know, While most Americans or most people in the world you know, hear, oh, 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees Celsius change over 100 and you know 40 years 50 years they think oh that's that's so small it's such a small number that number has come about since the 1880s when people started pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere at a rate that you know was really significant and it has caused what seems like a tiny amount of temperature change average over the entire planet but that small amount causes incredible devastation and problems for life on Earth, as we've seen in the past couple years. I mean, we're, we're now more and more certain that the temperature rise has worsened drought, worsened wildfires, made hurricanes ramp up much quicker than they had in the past, exacerbated flash flooding to a point that we've seen this year where these downpours come out of seemingly almost out of nowhere and uh, suddenly whole cities are underwater. So I think it's a funny balance because uh, you're trying to convince people of something, that, the seriousness of something that on its face, a lot of people might think, well, it's only a, you know a couple degrees warmer, so what's the big deal? I know that some of the guests that we've talked to on the series have been pretty frustrated that their research going back for years now has either not been taken seriously enough or been ignored altogether. We spoke to a scientist named Peter Gleick, who is the founder of the Pacific Institute out here in California, and he's somebody who has been sounding these warnings about how the climate change is going to affect the water cycle for years and years. In his own research, his own predictions have come true largely.
1: We know that the water cycle is changing. We're getting more severe floods and more severe droughts. Temperatures have gone up consistently over the last many decades. That's what people tend to think about when we think about climate change. But those higher temperatures means the demand for water is higher. The loss of water from our reservoirs evaporating off is higher. The demand for water from agricultural crops is greater. Uh, And so the warnings that The climate cycle and the water cycle are changing and that those impacts are going to be increasingly severe are now coming true.
0: Did you get the sense when you were talking to some of these climate scientists that they were just a a little bit frustrated with the fact that we find ourselves in this predicament?
1: I definitely have gotten that sense from climate scientists that I've interviewed over the years. You know, for the podcast, maybe. I think a lot of scientists see themselves more as just describing what's happening. And so you don't necessarily get that sense from them. But then there are scientists who feel like they've been warning, as you say, and that their warnings have been ignored. I don't know if you feel maybe you can talk about the effect that we're already seeing and feeling of climate change in the 1.2 degrees Celsius. That's about 2.2 Fahrenheit that we've already had out on the West Coast. I was just reading a story about the heat dome in the Pacific Northwest in June that killed hundreds of people. Obviously, I, I did a story about wildfires because I was out in Eastern Washington State visiting my in-laws where the wildfires were everywhere this summer and the smoke made the air seven times worse than Beijing, according to my calculations. But you live in San Francisco where you're surrounded by all of that. So you know you know this very well.
0: I think when it really started to hit home for me, you know, the past five years, in California, the wildfires have been so bad that we have one to two weeks where the smoke is so thick and hazardous that you start off your day by checking an air monitoring site to see how bad it is. And you find yourself not being able to go outside, not being able to leave your house. You're buying air filters online. Your whole day is lived around this sort of grim reality of what's outside. And then, of course, in uh, 2020, with the day that in the Bay Area, when it looked like, you know, a scene out of Dune 2049, the the sky was, you know, bright orange all day long. It never really felt like day. It felt like some dawn or, or dusk in a dystopian kind of way. A lot of people in this area, in this part of the world, really stopped any sort of skepticism they had about the fact that the climate was changing and its effects were profound. It really served as a wake up call. I think these past five years, you know, we just, just this weekend here in California, we, we went to the other extreme and we set a rainfall record in San Francisco. You know, it rained 12 inches in 24 hours on Mount Tamalpais. My backyard was uh, a lake We had just done some planting there that that that'll all probably be scrapped. I'm guessing. Again, there are small ways that it impacts you. There are big ways that it impacts you. But I think most Americans have taken their doubt and sort of pushed pause on it and said, maybe something really is going on here.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Although we just did that poll that found a majority of uh, Americans do accept climate science but only about half say it's an emergency mm-hmm. right and the scientific consensus is more that it's an emergency right right so so there's still a gap there right and then of course the other important fact is that the i you have to remind me of what our poll found was something in the order of about 30% who who don't accept climate science
0: that's about right yeah
1: yeah are heavily you know concentrated in the republican party and are heavily overlap with the most activist Mm -hmm. members of the party, right? And so they exercise a lot of influence on Republicans in Congress, Republican candidates for president. And so even though you have a large majority of the American public accepting climate science, you don't have a steady acceptance across the U.S. government. And that's pivoting back to Glasgow. I mean, that's one of the big issues with the whole international climate negotiations is that the US is the largest emitter of greenhouse gases by far. So and it's you know very wealthy it's and it's the largest economy in the world and of the really big countries it's the biggest emitter per capita. So the US to, to get other countries to buy in particularly developing countries like China or India the US really has to step up and cut its emissions really aggressively and provide climate finance for developing countries to grow in a more sustainable way using renewable energy instead of fossil fuels. And Biden is sort of doing the most he can on that front, but in a situation where the party that accounts for almost half of Congress is not on board. Mm -hmm. And as we've seen in recent weeks, all it takes is one Democrat in the Senate right, in this case, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, to say, I'm not, a, I'm not in favor of the centerpiece of your plan to combat climate change by incentivizing utilities to switch to clean power. And it sunk. And so that's one of the major challenges, I think, is that 30% U.S. has barely, barely budged, I think, in the years that I've been covering this. I'm not right. sure it's has down a whole lot, maybe a little
0: though we have seen a generational shift, right? I mean, we, we are seeing younger people being much more convinced of the seriousness of climate change than older generations. I mean, there there is a real divide there. And even in the Republican Party, you find majorities of young voters saying, yes, climate change is real and climate change is a problem. I'm interested in how some of our guests have inserted themselves or are trying to insert themselves in this public dialogue and influence opinion. We talked to Daniel Swain, for instance, a UCLA climate scientist who's a young guy who's got a big Twitter following, has his his own blog. And he really feels like, you know, it's part of his job and he's talking to podcasts like ours.
1: We know how to solve this problem. We know the kinds of specific things we need to be doing even to, to fix the problem. But that will involve a significant amount of social and economic, you know, inertia that needs to shift pretty quickly. And that's hard to do.
0: He really feels it's a part of his job to help message in a way that, you know, the average person can understand what's going on. He doesn't dumb down his science necessarily, but he is certainly reaching out using, you know, social media platforms and the like to you know make sure that this data and this information is really out front of people and um, so I, I think that's a one thing that our podcast is going to do it's going to bring the people who've been doing this work into your headphones or into your stereo or your car and you're going to be able to hear them speak directly to these issues whether it's frustration whether it's you know the efforts they're undertaking to convince people that this is Something that needs not only that's not only real, but that needs to be addressed through legislation. We also interviewed a guy named Ben Strauss.
1: If in the United States, we don't have some form of legislation or policy either in place or, you know, imminent, that that's going to be a big step in our own effort, right? It's it's kind of hard to go to the world and say, hey, you know, everyone cut your emissions a lot if we're not doing it
0: you did this great article for yahoo news on some modeling that his company did that showed famous landmarks underwater if we continue our current path which leads us to three degrees celsius of warming it's an illustration and it shows you oh here's buckingham palace underwater uh you know here's uh, here's santa monica without its famous beach and pier what did you think when you wrote up that article and when you looked at those images, did they have impact on you or were you just, you know, you knew this was all coming and so it didn't quite surprise you? Like, I'm curious how you felt about writing about that.
1: That's, that's a good question. You know, some of it did not surprise me because some of it I was aware. The sea level rise at the ocean front, obviously, was something that I knew about. Two things struck me about those images. The first is I don't think I had fully appreciated how much sea level rise we've already caused but has not yet occurred, right? You might know better than me, David, what's the average global sea level rise around now? Like a foot, a little less, maybe nine, 10 inches?
0: Yeah, we're we're somewhere between eight inches and a foot, depending on where you are.
1: Right, and we've warmed 1.2 degrees. (laughs) So you would think... Okay, if that doubles by the end of the century, then we'll get like two feet of rise. But actually, there's this long lag. So you have a lag between emissions and warming of a few decades, and then you have a lag between warming and melting of the glaciers until the full effect of that warming has been felt in sea level rise. And we've got several more feet of sea level rise coming based on just the warming we've already had. So you look at this picture of Santa Monica and you see the projections for how much of it will be underwater if we warm another degree or two degrees and so on. But if you look at just the projection for how much will be underwater at 1.2 degrees, it's not where we are now. It's way higher. Right. And the pier is underwater and the beach is underwater. Right. And, the, and the main difference between that and another you know, degree of warming is like, how much does the water move inland and to places where like houses are right now? So that really stuck with me. The other thing was, you mentioned Buckingham Palace. That one stuck with me because it's I don't think of London as being on the ocean, right? And it's not. It's, I forget how many miles, 30 miles inland or something at least, but it's on a river that empties into the ocean. And I guess that water just backs up or maybe it has to do with like, yeah, I don't know, glacial melt in Scotland. I, I I actually don't even know exactly why, but apparently there's going to be a ton of water right in the heart of London because of sea level rise. And I hadn't really thought about it in terms of inland cities. Philadelphia is another one that's not on the coast of Washington, D.C., where they did projections of rising tides. And I was totally like, struck by that because I had never thought of those cities as ones that would be affected by sea level rise.
0: Yeah. Well, Ben Strauss made a nice analogy for our interview with him where he talked about, you know, if you it could be hot enough to melt anything, but if you placed a giant rock of ice in downtown Phoenix, it would take, it could be very, very warm outside, but it would still take a while for that giant block of ice to melt. And so... That's sort of what we're seeing here with places like the Greenland Ice Sheet or Antarctica, which have enough ice in them to uh, cause ocean level to rise by, we're talking tens of meters. So really redrawing the entire U.S. coastline. Places like Florida, we've already long projected, are going to be reshaped by rising sea level And that is really going to start to happen over the next few decades. It's already started to happen. That's another thing about climate change that it used to be discussed in terms of, you know, some far off future. And now we're starting to see, no, actually, the adverse effects are already starting to happen. It's also the rate of change that is really worrisome. So each problem, sea level rise, is a You know a distinct problem from say flash flooding flash flooding is happening because for every one degree of temperature rise seven percent more moisture has been found to be contained in the atmosphere well when the situations arise that are favorable that moisture comes pouring down in ways that are really mind-boggling you're you're seeing rainfall records for 24-hour periods falling all over the country and all over the world. So I just think it's back to this question of, of scale. It's, it's back to this math problem and, and looking at how tiny fluctuations have big implications. And as we head into Glasgow, the conference that the United Nations is holding there, is one more opportunity for the world to put in place measures that can start to slow this process, start to slow temperature rise. What are you most looking forward to about going to Glasgow?
1: For me, it's a chance to meet people who are working on the issue from all over the world. I think that's the most rewarding thing. You have you know, activists from indigenous communities. You have experts from think tanks and advocacy organizations. And you have government officials all gathered in one place And uh, so it's just an opportunity to learn an enormous amount about what's going on. What about you?
0: I'm excited to see the interplay between the scientific community, the local community, the activists, and the people who come just telling their stories about how climate change is, is changing where they live. It's fascinating to me that we pretty much understand what's going on here, and we also understand what we need to do to fix it. And the question is whether we can summon the will to make choices which are, admittedly, they're, go- they're not going to be easy choices to make. There's a, a perception among some in the United States that, you know, this is just a matter of flicking a switch and changing an economy and uh, it'll be easy and it'll create jobs and everyone will be better off. Well, I'm not I'm not so sure about that. I think there are hard choices and changing entire economies is no easy matter. It's something that absolutely needs to be done. So I guess the passion of the activists meets the realism of the policymakers and everybody caught in between. So we'll we'll see. I I'm I'm just fascinated to see how those those dynamics play out. And I think that the drama will increase every, every season, every year, every decade, because the problem gets worse, and we're not we're not taking it in the right direction. So there's a big tension, and I'm I'm curious to see how it's going to play out. All right. Well, thank you, Ben. And in the lead up to the Glasgow Climate Change Conference, we'll be. Uh, rolling out five different episodes, interviews with five different climate scientists about their work and about the challenges that we've just discussed and life on Earth going forward. Thanks again.